Welcome to Learning Through Technology, a K-12 EdTech podcast brought to you by STS Education. We strive to be the bridge that connects communities of educators so that they can fulfill the promise of learning through technology. Join us every other week as we connect with education leaders who share their deep experience with the education and technology topics you are grappling with in your own schools and districts. Each interview is designed to bring you tangible ideas you can start using tomorrow. I'm Alex Inman, the founder of Educational Collaborators. And I'm Bob Sabruti, founder of the Edutech Group. Welcome to the show. Bob, today we have PJ Capozzi on the show. He's a small school or small district superintendent, but really well known for his innovation, public speaking, all that kind of stuff. So I've known the name, but I had not looked at his LinkedIn profile before our preparation for this podcast. And oh my God, his LinkedIn profile looks more like a Hall of Fame induction speech. <laughs> so that's what one looks like, huh? I wouldn't know by any way. But yeah, that's four pages, four pages of accomplishments. I'd be lucky to knock out four bullet points. I am pretty sure that you just did not expand all the areas because there's 46 publications on his profile as well. It's incredible. What are we going to talk about today? I think, what aren't we going to talk about today? <laughs> There's so much I want to know about is how do you become a principal at 28? What leads to that? How do you end up leading a school district like that? Plus all the other things he's still doing. He's still leading a school district. We've talked to people before who have retired or stepped away from their school responsibilities and, and have been on lecture circuits or keynote speaking. He's still doing it all. And then he's advising ed tech companies on how to work with schools. Like, I got tired reading it, man. <laughs> Well, let's start this thing and find out. <laughs> yes, indeed. Welcome, everyone. Today, we are joined by PJ Capozzi, a distinguished figure in the realm of educational technology and leadership. PJ's journey in education began in the heart of Chicago, where he established himself as an award-winning teacher, passionately committed to leveraging technology to enhance learning experiences. His very rapid ascent in educational leadership saw him become one of the youngest principals at age 28 and he soon took on a role of superintendent at Meridian CUSD 223. Under his guidance, the district witnessed a transformational journey evolving from a technology baseline to an example of excellence in educational innovation. Beyond his administrative accomplishments, Mr. Capozzi is a prolific author with a number of books to his name addressing various facets of educational leadership and technology integration. His expertise and insights have graced the pages of the Washington Post, NPR and CBS This Morning, among others, including our wildly successful podcast. A sought-after speaker and consultant, he plays a pivotal role in shaping educational strategies, focusing on the intersection of technology, leadership, and student empowerment. His work in EdTech not only reflects his forward-thinking approach, but also his commitment to nourishing environments where both educators and students thrive in the digital age. PJ, welcome to the show. Alex and Bob, thanks for having me. You bet. Bob, I always start. You want to get started on this? I love that you just throw that at me, Alex. But it turns <laughs> out I already have two questions here, which is two more than I normally have. <laughs> I guess one comment, one question. My first comment is CBS, NPR. I'd like to welcome you, PJ, to the big leagues here with us on the Learning Through Technology podcast to my colleagues at CBS and NPR. Huh. <laughs> your colleagues. They all turned to Bob to ask questions about broadcasting. They mostly learned from me by what not to do. Anyway, so 28 as a principal is remarkable. I mean, there are people in my family, not me, 
who were still in college working a bachelor's degree at 28. And he did finish and he's been very successful since. How do you end up principal at 28? Not by design. So it's one of those things where I'm ambitious, but at no point of my career has like the five-year plan been actualized. So I happened to teach the entirety of my career at a school that was dramatically underperforming. And we did some head-scratchingly, profoundly inept things of which I was like, I think I could maybe help, right? Like, I think that I should do something to become qualified to try to change the direction of this building. So I got my certification as quickly as possible. But in Chicago, there's this rule, which may or may not make sense, depending on which perspective you are, that you have to live in district in order to serve. And at the time, I had two little kids. And I just, quite frankly, couldn't afford to live in the overwhelming majority of Chicago at that time. And as a result, I started looking around to stay in an urban environment and be an administrator. Ended up in Rockford. Life circumstances got crazy for me in Rockford and was going to move to a different portion of the state and just started applying for assistant principal jobs in that portion of the state. And then there was this little small town that had a principal opening. I was like, it's not going to hurt to throw my name in the hat. And three months later, I'm named principal. And I was the, I believe, I'm not exactly sure because there's a couple that were close, but I believe I was the youngest person in the building between support staff, teachers, everyone other than the students. And off we went. And it was a ride. No way. The youngest person in the building is the principal. <laughs> so is that a case of like the dog chasing the car? When it catches the car, it doesn't know what to do. Or you're like, oh, no, here I am. Like, you thought you were going to be an assistant principal where you get some mentorship, perhaps, and you'd learn the ropes. But instead, you went right in the deep end. Yeah. I mean, I would say that at the time that I was hired as a principal, the entirety of my leadership philosophy, I'm talking like all the layers of the depth of the onion was I was willing to outwork or outread anyone. And that was really all I had. And so I struggled a great deal early in my career as a principal, just simply because I knew what should happen in terms of what research said. I, again, was willing to work really hard. I was willing to read and to research, but I had this blessing and this curse from the time that I've been 10 years old, like every club I've been a part of, I was the president. Every team I was a part of, I was the captain. And I just kind of always associated leadership with getting stuff done. And then I got into a school and realized like, hey, there's this whole thing of like stirring someone's soul and influencing their heart and their mind, of which I had zero skill at that point. And it felt like forever, like it was 18 months until it kind of made sense to me. But my first 18 months was like walking in quicksand. And I was a bull in a china shop. I was far too aggressive, far too quickly. And it was an interesting ride. <laughs> okay, so that's Fascinating. And you're also an expert in change management. So we're going to chat a little bit about that maybe later on. But you said you could outwork and outread anyone. And then you later said there are some differences between what's in the book. Well, what were some of the biggest differences you encountered between sort of what you read in preparing for being a principal and what you actually encountered? And how did you get out of that quicksand? Well, I mean, I would say that the biggest thing is human beings, right? Like, so we are complex creatures and not everyone does what you ask them to do or direct them to do. And you can't just like fire everyone. So like firing was my core strategy when I arrived. So in my first 
again, 15 months, I fired over 20% of the staff. Oh, wow. And so, like when I said a bull in a china shop, like that's exactly what was occurring. And I remember very vividly, there was a student and staff walk out and protest of me. So that's not something you forget. And so it took place during the school day. Interesting thing is that if students protest you during the school day, someone still has to supervise said students. And so I remember sitting on a wooden picnic bench, monitoring students protest me. And I was 28 years old. And I'm sitting to myself, I'm like, I got like 30 years of this. <laughs> it, it can't all be like this, right? right. <laughs> and I remember having a conversation and doing some reading and a line from Todd Whitaker, who's become a very close friend subsequently, that stuck with me. And it, it was just that, you know, no high quality school leader values policies and programs over their people. And at that point, I had 100% valued policies and programs over my people. And so I had to figure out how to reverse engineer that. And it wasn't like, I would love to tell you, like I was smart enough or skilled enough that like I had this epiphany and like sat on this picnic bench and like the next day I was a better leader. It wasn't like I had the sense of urgency that I had to get better, but it still took some time to turn that shit back around. That's a great journey. And that's like one first step, that step going from teacher to principal is a massive one, but you've continued on to become a superintendent, prolific author, national speaker, evaluator of EdTech solutions. What has driven you on that journey? And what are some of the big lessons that you've learned, like the one you just shared with us regarding putting people first? Yeah, I'd say the thing that it probably has driven me most, and I don't know if I would have gotten to like this answer without like therapy, probably, but I'm a three-time cancer survivor. And so... First time I was diagnosed was high school and then twice in my 30s. So I live really, really fast and really, really hard and not like the fun ways of living fast and hard, right? Like, so you hear someone like living fast and hard and you get like this image of someone like in a convertible. But for me, it's like what I realize is that like, hey, I have some talents and if I don't work as hard as I can to get as much out of those talents as possible given that I don't necessarily trust time, right? Like I see time as this very finite resource, then I don't know that I'm going to have the impact that I could potentially have. And so for me, I always kind of look at it that way. Like I am trying to maximize the impact that I can have to leave the world a little bit better than it was when I got here to help individual people grow. And ultimately I've chosen education as my life's work. And so that way, if I can leave education a little bit better, then I did my part, right? And I don't know if that sounds morbid or if that sounds more macro than how most people see the world, but it just is kind of my worldview. My worldview is we all have the opportunity to have one shot at this life and I'm going to do everything I can to maximize that. And that's one of the few things that I feel like I can control is my effort and how I deploy my energy and what impact I try to have. And so I say yes to a lot of things that a lot of people would say no to. I take as many opportunities as I can wake up early, stay up late and grind. And I love it. Like, and it fulfills me and I'm excited and it's not for everybody. I'm not saying that it should be, but it certainly is for me. Sure. I mean, life challenges certainly help us set our perspectives. So I'm a special needs parent. And so, you know, when you have your child and you have these visions for what your child is going to become, and then the doctors say, no, that's not at all the journey that you're going to have. 
it helps you sort of refocus, I think, on what is important. And I think I've shared with others that being a special needs parent is really a, a gift in that it is an amazing perspective finder in a world where it is very difficult to find perspective, right? And I've not gone through any of the kind of medical challenges that you have personally, but I can imagine that they set your perspective, like you said, on the things that allow you to have the impact that you want to have and give you that kind of focus and energy. That's awesome. Yeah, 100%. One of the things I talk about quite a bit and just about any time someone gives me a microphone, I try to work this in is there's a massive difference between thinking and speaking the words I get to versus thinking and speaking the words I have to. And what I have found in my time, both as a leader and just as a human being, is that really there's very little that we have to do. The vast majority of things in life we have chosen to do, we have worked really hard to have the opportunity to do, and we get to do. And that phraseology change is how I, on a daily basis, work through that perspective change. Because I would love to tell you every day I get home, and sometimes it's a eight-hour day, sometimes it's a 16-hour day, right? And I'd love to tell you that every time when I get home, I'm a perfect husband and a perfect father. But I think what we all know is that a lot of times you get home and the people that you love the most are the ones that you treat the worst at times. And so for me, it's this massive reminder of I get home literally this Wednesday and I'm tired and my wife got done working and she was tired. And then all of a sudden I remembered, oh, nine-year-old has basketball practice. And do I have to take her and do I have to sit there or do I get to take her and do I get to sit there? And when I think about it in the lines of like, yeah, I got this opportunity to have a nine-year-old who wants to be involved, who's athletically pretty gifted in a community that I love and that I get to go walk. Like it just changes everything. But if I stay in the I have to, which is where I think a lot of people live, they never get to the I get to. They stay in the I have to, I have to, I have to. That to me is how I can flip the perspective and cue back into what is really important to me and try to live my life and match my behaviors to the values that, that are in my heart and my soul. So I literally just wrote that down. I get to, not I have to. So normally I'm the guy with the smart comments and the pop culture references because I don't do my homework (laughs) (laughs) and you'll be shocked by that. But that hits home for me. My daughter turned 16 and she actually listens to these podcasts. So apparently she doesn't have much else to do. So hello, Marissa. (laughs) My children do not listen to this podcast, Bob. (laughs) My daughter listens to this podcast. I'm telling you, she texts me. We need to hear more of you, daddy. Or she's like, Alex was really good. (laughs) so but anyway she turned 16 in october so i don't get to take her to dance all the time she's a competition dancer and i don't get to take her to dance anytime and in the few months leading up to her turning 16 like every drive was like this is the last time i'm driving her to dance or this is the last time i'm driving her to school you know now she just hops in the car and i'll be home at 10 after ballet so i literally wrote that down because usually i i'm the guy with the jokes but i get to instead of i have to strikes home with me. I really like that. And what you mentioned is actually really interesting because I think we do a really good job of celebrating firsts and lasts. So not to be morbid, but if we ever knew it was going to be the last, it wouldn't be and I have to, it's and I get to. But when we think of the firsts, right? Like I have four kids, so I've seen kids go through athletics and the arts and the plays. And by the time your kid's 13 and you have to go to the 17th choir concert, you're like, all right, whatever, you know, 
those six-year-old parents that sit on the bleachers for the first time, those parents are pumped up to see there. Everyone's recorded. Everyone's excited. And so for me, I just want to try to bring the effort and the energy and the enthusiasm of the people that are doing things for the first time or people that are doing things for the last time. I just feel like if I do that, then I'm doing more of a service to the world and to the people I have the privilege of leading. It makes me think of something about our schools today, though, since you know we should talk a little bit about schools here. But it makes me think of like if you go to parent-teacher conferences for third graders, they're all there. Parent-teacher conferences for 11th graders, you could play basketball in the middle of the waiting room because there's nobody there waiting to do conferences. And you wonder why. These are the, you're at a lot more risk when you're 11th grader. At least I was a lot more risk as an 11th <laughs> grader of failing in life or failing in school or in a career than I was as a third grader. Like I didn't know any. I just went to school and did what they told me. So PJ, you've been a teacher, you've been a principal, a superintendent, and I can't even go on all the things that you've done. How do you see that engagement in parent engagement? What have you done about that? Well, first of all, I would say that we somehow systematically discourage it in schools. So as parents, like I think the kids naturally grow to a point where they don't want us as involved and it just becomes, there's that kind of natural evolution that takes place and which some of it I think is healthy, but some of it not so much. But in schools, I think one of the lies that we tell ourselves as educators is that we actually want parent engagement. I don't think many schools want parent engagement. They want parent support. Those are two dramatically different things. Support is, yeah, I'm going to do what I decided to do and I want you to back me. Engagement is I want you to tell me how you really feel to really think about it and to really constructively push me. I don't know many schools actually want parent engagement. And so after a while, parents figure out the game of, yeah, they're not going to really listen unless I'm a real jerk and I don't want to be a real jerk. And My kid's doing okay-ish. The kids don't really want me around, so I'm going to chill out. And we don't do anything to counteract that because quite literally, in most cases, that's an easier path forward for most schools. So I'm in a really fortunate position in the district I'm at where as a small town rural superintendent, we kind of are the only show in town. We're the largest employer, like Friday Night Lights, whether it be for football or volleyball or wrestling or basketball, is the show in town. And so we have a pretty engaged populace. And there are times where I'm like, this is amazing. And it helps us be this great school district and all of the things. And there are times I talk to my buddies. I'm like, it would really be nice, however, if we just had parent support, right? So like, I think that schools are, it's an interesting place because we talk about engagement all the time. I actually don't think we actually, in most cases, want it. Now, I do think, however, schools would be better if we had it. So I think it's a really interesting slippery slope. Promethean is a proud sponsor of today's episode of Learning Through Technology, a K-12 EdTech podcast presented by STS Education. Promethean makes interactive displays and teaching software that drive breakthroughs for teachers, students, and colleagues around the world. Learning and collaboration are essential to progress in any field. Our mission is to transform them for the better. As education and the workplace continue to evolve, Promethean is there, helping our customers get the most from cutting edge technology and making sure they're ready for what's next. At Promethean, we are inspired by educators. Promethean was created by teachers for teachers people with a passion for empowering everyone to shine their brightest. Please visit prometheanworld.com to learn more. So as I 
put two students through K-12 and now my third child is going through that. Now I think about when I've been engaged versus just, well, actually when I've been in districts where they actually hoped that I wouldn't be engaged, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I've seen that. I'm sort of tying together some of the last stuff you talked about with the I get to versus I have to plus this, but I'm changing the audience a little bit to teachers. So we're kind of at a time where teacher retirements and people leaving the industry is at an all-time high. And the number of people coming into education is an all-time low. And so how do we create the environment to keep teachers engaged and retained in our schools? Yeah. Well, I think we have to tell them the truth. And I also think that we are terrible salesmen. And so let's start with the recruitment, then we'll get to the retention. When all we do is complain about education as educators, and then we look and be like, oh, no one wants to do this. Well, what do you, of course, we do not do a great job of being like, and when I say tell the truth, like, this is the deal. The job is really hard. It's really stressful. You're going to hear and see things that if you were fortunate to not live a trauma-filled childhood that you probably can't imagine, we're not going to pay you exceptionally well. The benefits now in this public sector are worse than they are in the private sector, which used to be the thing. But if you're called to do it, there's no more important, more rewarding job in the world. Like That's the truth, but we don't say it anymore. Like We have not kept up with industry-wide what benefits look like. And so what do I mean by benefits? Well, part of the benefits used to be we had great insurance. We would have a salary that at least would let you live in the community you serve. And you had all this time off during the summer, which gave you flexibility. Well, now almost every white collar job has an enormous amount of flexibility that looks way different than the confines of being in a particular audience between seven and four every day. So we do that. Now our benefit in terms of actual compensation and insurance, also lay behind private sector. And we work in a place where there's like a total gig economy. So you could do very little substantive work and make the same amount of work that's commensurate with being a teacher. Quite literally, there's a Chick-fil-A eight miles away from my district that as an entry-level full-time employee, you make more than an entry-level teacher. So this is a massive problem that we have to eventually solve. But the work that I focus on beyond recruitment, because I feel like a lot of recruitment issues are really like high level policy, government, state superintendent things. At the local level, and I go back to another Todd Whitaker quote. So shout out Todd, I guess, again, that's the second time. But he said, there's only two ways that you improve a school system is either you hire better teachers or improve the ones you got. So for me, the way that we improve our school systems is to invest in our teachers, to grow them, to love them, to try to prevent as much attrition as possible so that we can retain the high quality ones that we have. And so like for me, when my board asks me, I've got 17 direct reports as a superintendent. When my board sat down and we said, how are we going to evaluate you? I said, I want to be evaluated on how many of my direct reports choose to leave for lateral positions. And they're like, well, that's a weird thing to be. I'm like, I am not developing and retaining our leaders. If they want to go somewhere else and not work, under the environment that I'm creating, then I am failing. And so eventually they've come around to it, right? And we've had 0% voluntary turnover for like four years. Now we have some people that leave from a principal through a superintendency. That's a feather in the cap. That's not a bad thing, right? If you're moving up the ladder. But 
I want our principals to view their teachers the same way, right? Like our business is growing human beings. And as a leader, I get to grow principals as a principal or as a director or as a C-suite or whatever we do. Their job is to grow their teachers. The teacher's job is to grow the kids. We are in the people growth industry. And that's going to be really hard and really painful and really long. And we have to admit that that's okay. Like we all have hard work to do in our lives. It's just, are we choosing the right hard work for us? So I want to be respectful of your time and the time of our viewers. And we kind of wrap up with a couple of specific questions, but I'm not quite ready to move into our final questions yet. But one of the things earlier in your career, you wrote a little bit more about the role that technology plays in in education. And even now still, you advise ed tech companies on how to best fit the K-12 industry. Tell me, what are you seeing in that space? What is it that schools can do with technology or technology should do to better fit schools so that ultimately the humans are served better? So I think that one of the things that teachers talk about sometimes, and I very rarely talk negative about teachers, as you can tell, like I think that we have to protect them and value them and love them. But teachers talk about the real world a lot. And a lot of them have never been in the real world. They've been in a school forever. And so one of the things that we have to do is immerse ourselves in what is essentially the cultural competency of the technology world that our young people are going to exit into. And if we are not preparing them to be minimally proficient in what they are going to exit the school into the real world, then we are doing them a dramatic disservice. So like the argument right now would be AI. And so that's a really complex argument, right? Like it is all over the place. We love it as educators. It's been around in education forever when it helped us better intervene and diagnose and all those things, but we didn't see it as AI because we didn't call it and it wasn't generative. So now we're scared of it when it is. Like we have to get over that because that's literally the world that these kids are going to go into. And if we don't embrace that, we're simply doing them a disservice. So that would be the core philosophy. If I'm talking about ed tech in general at large, the biggest thing that is painful for me as a superintendent is there are some startups that do amazing work and they're pouring their blood, sweat, and tears into doing everything they can to create these amazing things. And then they get bought by a big monolith company and get bastardized and then they lose all their value. And so that is what painful for me is that the consolidation, which I know is just industry and capitalism and I benefit from that system. So I'm not hating. I'm just saying like, it's hard to watch at times. And that is going to happen on steroids right now because so many, there was such an investment in ed tech with COVID and there was such from venture capitalists and VC money. And there was such an investment from the school side with ESSER money. And when that money dries up, a lot of those places are going to go to the highest bidder. I think we're going to lose some brilliance of some founders and some really incredible educators that have used their talents to try to transform on the other end. And that's scary and sad. Yeah, it is a difficult thing that happens all the time and it's happening at an accelerating rate. How do schools protect themselves from that or adjust to that? So the honest answer is that most of them have no idea it's happening until it happens and don't. So, I mean, I think that's the issue is trying to figure out, is there a way that you can create up a systematic approach that you understand who is in which market that you are trying to attack? Are there multiple vendors that are doing the same type of work? 
picking the one that best suits your needs, but constantly staying aware of where everyone else is at so that if vendor A turns into becoming a sub-component of some other company, that you know what the other opportunities are in the area so that you can determine whether you want to continue to follow them to the, the big company or make some different decisions. Most districts are just not in that position to be that thoughtful about it. Yeah. One of the things I always did as a tech director and advised my peers and colleagues to do because I had been burned with that very same problem is whenever we are interviewing, now we do it as consultants rather than as a tech director, but I spent 22 years as a tech director. When interviewing somebody for a product or solution that I was about to bring into the school or district, my question was, I know we haven't purchased you yet, but when we decide that we're leaving you, I want to know how do I get my data? I want to know how I exit you before I even decide whether or not I'm going to begin working with you. And secondarily, I and mean, we didn't talk about this, but how am I going to measure my return on investment? Because when I go in and do consulting work and I'll look at someone's list of ed tech partners, and it's not uncommon to see over 100 partners. And I'm like, all right, well, which ones are working? And they're like, what do you mean, which ones are working? Like, which ones are actually creating outcomes for you? Like, wow, we don't know. And there's no measurement of whether they're actually performing or not performing. And I'm not saying that everything has to be an SAT score or whatever, but like, is it just usage, right? Like, hey, if we get kids into whatever, that's good enough. Those can be independent, locally created, but far too often we do a ton of vetting on the front end before we enter the contract. But once we enter the contract, it's almost like a foregone conclusion. Like, yeah, as long as they're good at customer service and don't jack up the prices too much, they're like in perpetuity now, we're going to be a partner. That's just not good business. That's a great observation, PJ. We spend lots of times, I sit in a member of many schools' cabinets in my role and in, in when we're evaluating software platforms, for instance, for a school, they tell us, this is how you're going to measure your students' performance. This is how you're going to improve their performance. We never, truly never stop and think, how will we measure the platform's performance for us? What will we do to say, this is working, this is worth a significant portion of our budget, this is worth the PD that we're going to invest in our teachers. This is worth the time for our students to learn a new platform. We never do that. And honestly, well, we know I'm not the smartest guy around here, but I never thought of that. These cabinet meetings go, okay, now we know what it does for students. How do we know what it's doing for us to help those students? And that's huge. And so the larger companies right now, which is a brilliant business model, are looking for single source solution providers, right? So I'm going to provide the textbook and then I'm going to provide the assessment. And then I'm going to provide the intervention based on the assessment data. And then all of a sudden, all of my solutions become one thing. And I'll provide the professional development around all of that. How can you possibly measure whether any of those pieces are successful if it's all the same thing coming from one entity? I agree. It's a brilliant business model. But I don't know how, as the consumer, I can say this is what's working, this is what's not working, when everything is the same. One of the things I present on, I'm actually doing it next week, is on measuring the value of your technology initiatives, right? And it's not just tech, and you could use the same process for any of them. But the tools that I share in that session are actually freely available from COSIN. It's the COSIN TCO calculator and the total cost of ownership calculator and the value on investment, which is their shift you know, on return on investment. One of the, my favorite things about the return on investment or the VOI tool is that it gives you this table to put stuff in and looking at the table itself is just sort of like, I have no idea where to start. But if you just kind of scroll down, and we'll put this resource in the show notes too. If you just scroll down, you'll find that there are 
all sorts of different categories of things that we care about, like student performance, teacher retention, community involvement and engagement, and then smaller measures that you can use for each of those so that you can start to think about what it is that you care about. Now, the reality is it still takes the effort to pay attention to those things, measure those things, and actually evaluate those things. But at least it's a nice tool to get you started because I think a lot of people sit down in front of a blank piece of paper and say, uh, now what? Right. And for me, it's, again, one of those things where this is so subjective and can be qualitative. So we partnered with one of the 24-7 online tutoring companies like lots of districts did during the pandemic. And what I wrote into the proposal to our Board of Education for how are we going to measure return on investment is that when the contract is up, if we pull it, people won't notice, or if we pull it, there'll be a revolt because it's become a cultural portion of what we do. That's not numbers, but it was pretty clear and it did not stick culturally for us. So we moved on from that company and that's okay. But we had a stated return on investment thing that we we're going to be identifying, looking for. It doesn't have to be a smart goal, but we should be at least thoughtful about how we're doing. So we could talk for a long time about a number of these topics. And I hope people have got an idea of PJ's expertise to find him and his base of knowledge that we just barely scratched the surface of. Alex, it occurs to me that when we start our new podcast, the EdTech Startup, PJ is going to be, you know, co-host or he's got to come on and talk to us because I think the stuff he said is, I don't know if we're still a startup, but as an EdTech company with EduTech Group and you with educational collaborators, I never thought. How can you measure us for performance? Wouldn't that be a great thing to tell a superintendent? This is why you should work with us. And this is how you'll know if we're working for you. That'd be awesome. So we're going to do that, Alex. We're going to have that podcast, the EdTech Startup Podcast with Bob and Alex. And maybe you'll let me talk more. Hosted in Macedonia. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So Alex and I have this uh, wager. So no pressure, PJ, but I will say bad things about you when you're not around if I don't win. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we're all in education. Some of us better students, Alex, than me, bad student. We like to know who's your favorite teacher or who influenced you as a teacher and why? So a little bit different answer to each of those. So one, my favorite teacher of all time was a guy named Colin Hopper, AP US history. And he was awesome. And he made history come alive for me. Went from my least favorite subject to the subject that I eventually taught. And he knows it. And I've had the fortunate privilege of telling him. The most influential overall would have been a guy named Ron Sawin, who's now Dr. Sawin. When I was going through my cancer struggles, I was in advanced math, and the homebound tutors couldn't teach it because it was beyond what they were capable of doing. And so this is how old I was. I sent him a handwritten note back saying, hey, I'm in advanced math as a junior. I'm just going to drop it and take it as a senior because I've already done what I need to do. This will be great for college, but I can take it next year. And I never heard back from him. And then all of a sudden, he just started showing up at my house. And he's like, I'll just take care of it and tutored me to get me through and never would accept a gift, never would accept a thank you. It was just part of how he saw the job. And that made me want to be a teacher because before then, I was very fortunate, loving parents. Like I grew up in a very charmed childhood and school was cool and teachers were fine, but like I didn't need them. And I had a moment of need and a teacher stepped up to the plate. And that's what I wanted to be for other kids. And that's why I chose to be an educator. That's a pretty good answer. And for the record, Bob won. That was a clear win for Bob. (laughs) Thank you, PJ. (laughs) Your reputation is clear with me. (laughs) Our our wager is that 
Bob's like, everybody's going to know this, like right off the top of their head. They're like, there will be no doubt in this. And I'm like, I don't know. I said, I think that some people are going to re- need to reflect on that. And so when we first set the bet, I was the undisputed, arousing, absolute, comprehensive winner. And Bob was that extreme on the loser side. But he picked up one today. So good for you. All right. <laughs> PJ, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, when Bob and I were looking at kind of your profile and some of your background, it was like, holy cow, what do we talk about? Because there's so many different things. We actually covered a lot of a great ground, and I think we could probably talk for another hour at least. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I had a great time. So how was that, Alex, man? We covered some ground there, didn't we? Oh, my God. And we only... Like you said it before, we scratched the surface. We like literally barely scratched the surface. If you have a moment to look at this guy's LinkedIn profile, it is insane. He is prolific in his publications. Unbelievable. I was shocked when reading through it. And normally we spend our time with him a little bit before to get to know and what are we going to cover? And he was able to speak on any topic. He knew it. He understood it. I feel so inadequate. But but (laughs) there was a lot there. So from your perspective, what struck you? Is something you'll hang on to, Alex. You know, I mean, there were a lot of spectacular golden nuggets in this episode. You called out, I think was probably my favorite, the I get to versus I have to. And, you know, when he said that, it was immediately connecting to a lot of the stuff that he said earlier. And then it stayed with me through all of the stuff that he talked throughout. Like, what a mantra to have a positive perspective as a leader, as a teacher, as a parent. And in terms of just sort of thinking about your school and retention, because there's a lot of things that we feel like we have to do as teachers. And there are, and there are plenty of things that we have to do, but a lot of what we do is stuff that we are just going to do for the kids because it's the right thing for them. And we treat that a lot of times like a have to, because we feel like it's what the kid needs, but it really is a, we get to, and when, when you see a bad teacher, you see that difference, but If you can fill your own bucket with the joy of I get to versus I have to, I don't know, that just, that one's going to stay with me, I think, longer than this episode for sure. That I get to instead of I have to, simple. And it gives you that thought. It reminds me of one that I, um, the power of one word that I practice Taekwondo and compete some. And one of my respected instructors told me the power of the word yet. And I share that with our team regularly. We can't do that. No, we can't do that yet. We're not good at it. We're not good at it yet. We may not be an accomplished teacher yet. We may not be a successful educational technology company yet. And I thought those kind of go hand in hand. That was something that also struck me that immediately came to mind is you get to, you have to. We're not good yet. That's a good one. And we didn't have very many pop culture references. So I'd like to share this one with you. This is the worst day of my life. Ah, worst day of your life yet. Oh, man, I don't know the answer, but I know the reference. You got to give it to me. I I don't know. It's the Simpsons movie. (laughs) Ah, On the nose for some of the stuff that we have coming up, right? On the nose. That's that's true. Yeah, there are more to come. Way to put that on us here in the end. (laughs) There could be more bad days. Just hang on. (laughs) That's right. This is your worst day yet. We did miss out on some of the pop culture references, but in more important news, I won the wager. Go down. <laughs> and that sounds like the way to end this episode. It's <laughs> so. an excellent way to end the episode with Bob winning. <laughs> Bob wins. Thanks, everybody. Join us next time on our next episode. 
Learning Through Technology, a K-12 EdTech podcast is brought to you by STS Education, a Pacific one-source company. To learn more about how educators can leverage technology to drive successful educational outcomes, check us out at www.stsed.com. Connect with us by searching for Learning Through Technology in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And click subscribe so you don't miss an episode. On behalf of the team at STS Education, thanks for joining us.